1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum. The biggest abortion rights case in decades came before the U.S. Supreme Court this morning, one with the ability to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 decision that established a constitutional right to an abortion. Here's Justice
2: Sotomayor. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political
1: acts. This hour, we get your reactions to the hearing and the justices' questions, and we learn how California is already preparing for a post-Roe world. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. The right to an abortion stands on a legal precipice, and today's U.S. Supreme Court hearing gave a sense of just how close to the edge that right is. The hearing was over a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, with no exceptions for rape or incest. But the case goes further than Mississippi. State officials there have asked the court to rule on whether all bans on pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional, striking at the heart of Roe v. Wade, which established a constitutional right to abortion before a fetus is viable, which occurs at about 24 weeks. Joining me now to dissect the justices' questions and what they might tell us about the direction that the court is moving in is Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School and host of the podcast Passing Judgment. Professor Levinson, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me on such a big day.
1: How are you feeling immediately after listening to the hearings today?
3: Not at all surprised and completely shocked at the same time, Um, because I think we all knew this day was coming where we were going to hear the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. Um, engage in arguments about whether or not abortion should continue to be a protected right in our constitution and you can know it's coming for a long time and then it can still be startling to hear the justices have discussions about you know whether it's really a burden on a woman to have a child to raise a child Um, and to hear the justices frankly signal where these cases could be going which is at least if it's up to Justice Clarence Thomas, to really undermining a whole area of the law, dealing with privacy rights and substantive due process. So Mm -hmm. totally predictable and completely shocking at the same time.
1: I want to review a little bit exactly what Mississippi state officials are asking the Supreme Court to do. And what I'm going to do is actually play a little bit from Scott Stewart, Mississippi Solicitor General, who's arguing, of course, in favor of Mississippi's ban of abortions at, after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Here he is.
4: Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life.
1: Jessica Levinson, Stewart here is not simply asking for them to uphold Mississippi's law, but to overturn Roe and Casey, correct?
3: And what's really, absolutely, that's correct. And what's really interesting is that wasn't their initial strategy. Their initial strategy was just uphold Mississippi's law, which is a ban on abortion after 15 weeks, which would be unconstitutional under our current case law. And then it really shifted as they got to the Supreme Court to just overturn Roe and Casey, period, those two presidential cases that uphold a woman's right to obtain an abortion as being a constitutionally protected right. And so this is absolutely the challenge that a lot of people have been waiting for, either with excitement or dread, for a long time. This is the challenge that goes to the heart of those cases.
1: Based on what we heard today, it sounds like Mississippi made a pretty good bet. Who were the justices that you were listening closely to? For example, I was listening to Closely to Justice Kavanaugh, as someone who might be willing to consider a more moderate pass, say, than the more staunchly conservative anti-abortion justices on the court. But what were you hearing from him?
3: Uh, nothing to indicate that. So what's fascinating when you're listening to these oral arguments, of course, is to remind yourself that the court is now so conservative, the most conservative court that we've had since the 1930s, that you no longer need the chief justice, you can lose the chief justice and still make a very conservative decision because you have six conservative justices. So I think, you know, Mina, you're exactly right to be focusing on Justice Kavanaugh. And, you know, maybe there was some kind of talk that maybe there's this middle ground that would be tread by Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, um, maybe Justice Barrett. And what I heard from Justice Kavanaugh over and over again was this idea that well, this isn't written in the Constitution. And he kept using the phrase constitutional neutrality, which yes. is really code for, well, let's just say you know, that the Constitution doesn't answer this question. But if the Constitution doesn't answer this question, that means that you eviscerate the protection of individuals to obtain an abortion and it's up to states. So that really means that you overturn Roe and Casey and that you are living in a country where frankly, women have two very different experiences. If you're living in a, in a state like California, you continue to have access to an abortion. If you're living in many, many other States, then that access is completely undermined. So this idea of constitutional neutrality, again, I think it's a, it's code for, We don't have to uphold Rowan Casey.
1: Yes, and he seemed to follow up with that idea of different states having different rules as a positive thing, saying that if Mississippi prevailed, states wouldn't necessarily have to follow Mississippi. They could continue to allow abortions if they so choose, suggesting that those differences were actually all right. Um, The other area that Kavanaugh spoke a lot on was Starry. Decisis. Can you explain what that is? Of course, it yeah. comes up a lot with regard to Roe and what you heard from him.
3: Yes. Yeah, so stare decisis is really what looms so large over all of these arguments. And I was talking to some of my friends last night and they said, are we going to hear the words stare decisis more than we hear the words abortion? And the answer is maybe. And in fact, we heard a lot about stare decisis. It's the idea that you have to respect past case law, that you have to respect prior decisions that the Supreme Court has made. And now we we can ask ourselves why. And the idea is for a couple of reasons. But one, you need to be able to rely on case decisions, on Supreme Court decisions, and on other, it's not just for the Supreme Court, on other uh, judicial decisions, because you need to know how to act. You need to know what's permissible and what's not permissible. The other thing about stare decisis and why it's important is it, it bolsters the idea that judges are not just politicians in robes, that they're making decisions that don't just change with their personal whims and desires, that they're making decisions based on something greater and deeper about finding what the law really is, not what their personal political ideologies really are. And the reason that we heard about it so much is, of course, we do have old precedent in this area. We're talking about Roe is almost 40 years old. Casey is almost 30 years old. And these are cases that people have relied on for a long time. And so this this Mississippi law didn't just come to the court as a matter of first impression. It's not just, what would you do with Mississippi's law? We know what this court would do with Mississippi's law. It would uphold it. The question is, what do you do with Mississippi's law, given that there are two very old cases that are heavily relied upon, which say Mississippi's law is unconstitutional?
1: I want to play a little bit of Justice Kavanaugh. This is after Justice Kavanaugh lists a series of cases in which the court did overrule precedent, including notorious cases like Plessy v. Ferguson and Bowers v. Hardwick, and seems to suggest that overruling Roe might be justified.
5: So the question uh, on stride Isis is why if and I know you disagree with what I'm about to say in the if, if we think that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually the return to the position of neutrality and uh and um not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't.
1: The other thing that's so striking about that is, is sort of suggesting that you're putting Plessy and Roe in the same category?
3: Yes. Uh, I don't think it's sort of suggesting it. I think it's explicitly <laughs> suggesting. And we heard this in a number of different instances. And this is you know, why when we started the conversation, I mean, again, for me personally, there is still something shocking about hearing Roe be likened to separate but equal. Um, and that's what you're doing when you're saying, well, we had to overturn Plessy because that was wrong. So we overturned that and we have Brown versus Board of Education, for instance. And so maybe we need to overturn Roe because that's just like separate but equal. It's so wrong that it's just like separate but equal. And of course, the court also talked about some of their decisions like Bowers v. Uh, Hardwick where um, they upheld a law that criminalized essentially um same-sex intimate activities, and then later overturned that. Um, it, there's a lot of differences between, I mean, I hope it goes without saying, and I don't mean to make light of this, but no. there are a lot of differences between separate but equal and um, in the Roe decision and the Casey decision. But what the court is basically doing, or what some members of the court are basically doing, is saying look, we do have situations where we overturn past decisions. And you heard a number of the conservative justices kind of trying to find a way to say, Roe and Casey are no longer workable. And I counted about, I think three votes to say, let's just overturn them period. Let's have that big moment. Let's not pretend that we're adhering to them, but whittling down.
1: I want to play a little bit of Justice Elena Kagan now. This is Kagan making the point that Roe is more than four decades um, of precedence and that it has to be taken into account. Here's Justice Kagan.
6: I mean, it strikes me that people some people think those decisions made the right balance and some people thought they made the wrong balance. But in the end, we are in the same exact place as we were then. Except that we're not because there's been 50 years of water under the bridge, 50 years of decisions saying that this is part of our law, that this is part of the fabric of women's existence in this country. And that that places us in an entirely different situation than if you had come in 50 years ago and made the same arguments.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what Kagan is saying here, Jessica Levinson?
3: absolutely Kagan is saying don't forget that these are cases that we decided and when we looked particularly at you know first of course in 1972 there's the decision in Roe v Wade or excuse me 1973 then 1992 there's the decision in Casey versus Planned Parenthood she said we looked particularly in Casey at these you know this idea that maybe Roe was unworkable. And we've looked at this for decades and we've rejected this idea. And you, what you hear essentially is Justice Kagan saying, let's not pretend that Mississippi's law is coming to us in a vacuum. It's coming to us in a place where we have two cases that clearly say this is unconstitutional. And two cases that have not proven to be unworkable, two cases that don't deserve to be overturned under stare decisis. And it that's really where you, I, I hear the music, but that's really where you heard Justice Kagan focusing a lot of her yes.
1: time. Yes. More with Jessica Levinson and you, are listeners, after the break, this is Forum.
4: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about oral arguments heard today before the Supreme Court that strikes at the heart of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that gave a constitutional right to an abortion. We're talking with Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School and host of the podcast Passing Judgment, and you, our listeners, are welcome to join the conversation with your reactions to the hearing today, your questions about the future uh, of Roe v. Wade. Also, if you want to share what today's hearings are bringing up to you, up for you, if you've ever had an abortion, considered having one or know someone who has, and what that experience was like, you can call us at 866 6786 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Joshua wrote, the end of Roe would mean the minority forcing their beliefs on the rest of the nation, taking away women's access to safe abortions. Jessica Levinson, I I wanted to have a chance to ask you about your reaction to the things that uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was saying today. I think that uh, she surprisingly sometimes sounded like somebody who might consider a narrow path or even... Um, the legitimacy of of viability as a standard, but then at the same time started to ask questions about safe havens and things like that. Can you give us a sense of how you took in Amy Coney Barrett's questioning today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So there were some moments where you kind of scratched your head for a minute and thought, is she? potentially trying to tread a middle ground? And I think the answer is probably not. We, of course, do not know what's gonna happen behind closed doors when the justices meet to have a conference and basically, I think, try and find which kind of middle ground or narrow path are we gonna take here. But Justice Barrett spent a lot of time, as you said, focused on these safe haven laws. Essentially, what she was asking is, what's the difference between are you arguing that the burden is carrying a child to term? Are you arguing that the burden is the pregnancy or are you arguing that the burden is motherhood? And she said, if you're arguing that the burden is motherhood because there's all sorts of reasons as all of us listening know that it can be, it can take a lot of time and resources to raise a child, then don't worry about that because we have safe Haven laws. And then she kind of pivoted to this idea, but if you're worried about the pregnancy, then we already say that after 24 weeks, we can, the state can force you to have a child. So is there really that much difference between 15 weeks and 24 weeks? And that's where I think we heard her talking about viability, really asking you know which bucket are you worried about are you worried about motherhood or are you worried about pregnancy and if it's motherhood we have safe haven laws and if it's pregnancy then you know is that 9 weeks really that much different and so for those reasons i don't count her as you know trying to find a moderate middle ground here
1: and can you remind us what julie rickelman the senior director of litigation at the center for reproductive rights what Rickelman's response was to Coney Barrett's assertion that we do have this ability, we have safe havens, and so on, and that the burden it might not be as burdensome as Rickelman was suggesting.
3: Yeah, she had a, a lot of responses. But one, of course, she talked about kind of the inadequacies. If, if my memory serves, I will say she talked about the inadequacies of some of these safe haven laws, and then she said let's focus that we're not just talking narrowly about motherhood or about pregnancy. We're talking more largely about liberty interests. We're talking about autonomy. We're talking about not forcing women into these decisions and into these situations at all. I believe that this is where there was the conversation about the fact that in Mississippi, it's 75% more dangerous to bear a child than it is to have a pre-viability abortion. So she basically said, look, just, you know, Justice Barrett, you can't say that the safe haven laws solve the burdens of motherhood, and you can't say, frankly, that moving that line from 24 weeks to 15 weeks doesn't really cause that much more problems. Again, because of all of the, well, frankly, because it's much safer pre-viability to have an abortion than it is to carry a child to term in many circumstances. And what was interesting is. You heard the Solicitor General, and you heard others arguing against the Mississippi law saying, "Let's focus on women's liberty interest." And they were really talking to the conservative justices who, in other areas, worry about liberty. I don't think it will be successful, but it was a smart strategy to do that.
1: Let me play just a little bit of Julie Rickelman. I, I don't believe this was that moment of her talking about liberty, but she does talk about the stakes here.
0: Mississippi's ban on abortion two months before viability is flatly unconstitutional
1: under decades of precedent. Mississippi asks the court to dismantle this
7: precedent and allow states to force women to remain pregnant and give birth against their will.
1: And that part, remain pregnant and give birth against her will, then, of course, leads into what she's talking about in terms of its effect on their liberty. Curtis writes, without evidence of fetal viability before 26 weeks, how can the conservative justices possibly alter Roe by reducing the length of pregnancy arbitrarily? This did come up a bit in terms of what is the science really supporting and what is new that Mississippi is arguing here that hasn't already been settled in previous cases?
3: I'm going to kind of take the end of the question first, if that's okay, which is what's new and what's new is frankly nothing, right? What's new is that there are different justices on the Supreme Court and people of course will disagree with me on this, but you heard Justice Sotomayor when um, the attorney for Mississippi started talking about, you know, some new scientific evidence. She said, okay, so there are some fringe doctors who may indicate X, Y, or Z, but let's really get back to the mainstream here. The thing that's changed Uh, at least in my opinion, is that, again, we now have the most conservative court since the 1930s. And that's why it is no coincidence that states started passing very restrictive abortion laws when it looked clear that we were going to have a solidly six to three conservative court. Because, frankly, that's your moment, right? If you want to try and overturn Roe and Casey, this is the moment to bring the case. And Mississippi did. And they were very clear that this was intended as a fold frontal assault, basically on Roe. And so, yes, things change from Roe to Casey in the sense that I think the line for viability changed by arguably about two weeks. But there haven't been major scientific changes that would say, That would call into question the viability line. And frankly, legally speaking, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to call into question the viability line when you think about the different interests that you're balancing here.
1: Jessica Levinson, you wrote a piece that published this morning that said SCOTUS could go one of three ways um, after this hearing today, what are those paths and what do you think is the likely one? I know that's never a great question because no one wants to predict what the court will do, but we did get some pretty interesting peeks into what they are thinking.
3: No, it is a great question and it makes me feel like 5 a.m. this morning when the piece went up feels like a distant memory in some ways. So the paths were basically door number one The court says, oh gosh, we shouldn't have taken this case. We're just going to say that Roe and Casey are still good law and basically not do anything. I don't see that as being at all likely given what we heard this morning. And frankly, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense for the court to take the case in the first place. Door number two is, I think, potentially likely, where the court says we're upholding the central promise or the, you know, the essential part of Roe and Casey, but Roe and Casey just mean a lot, lot less than you think they did, and they allow for a 15-week abortion. So they somehow get past the idea that Casey explicitly says our essential holding is about viability and. They keep Roe and Casey, but they eviscerate viability as the line and 15 weeks becomes permissible. And then door number three, which I'm not entirely sure is off the table, is just, you know what, we were wrong in Roe versus in Roe and Casey and we no longer have a constitutionally protected right to an abortion in this country. And that's to Justice Kavanaugh's idea of quote, constitutional neutrality. And so it's just up to the states. We're not gonna tell the states that they can. We're not gonna tell the states that they can't. It's up to the states to, or excuse me, that they can't. It's just up to them to make their own determinations. Um, I think door number two is the most likely, but you can't rule out a full um, overrule of and Casey, particularly given some of the questioning we heard this morning.
1: Given some of the questioning and the fact that uh, they decided to take this case at all, given the fact that uh, a federal district court agreed that Mississippi's law was unconstitutional and a very conservative Fifth Circuit appeals court also agreed that it was unconstitutional.
3: Well, yes, but the lower court and the Fifth Circuit are bound by the Supreme Court. So I think that Fifth Circuit, actually, if they had their druthers, they would have wanted to say something else, but they yeah. had to <laughs> adhere to Round Casey because they know they're a lower court.
1: Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School, host of the podcast, Passing Judgment. Thanks for your analysis this morning. Thank you so much. You, our listeners, are with us, asking questions about abortion rights, the Supreme Court, today's oral arguments. Have you ever had or considered having an abortion? What was your experience, and how does that inform your view on abortion rights? You can call us eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Jane in Fairfax. Hi, Jane.
6: <laughs> Good morning. Uh, this is just so horrific for one who has lived long enough to remember when abortion was illegal and and very difficult to find if you could find one uh my first experience i was 17 years old i had a 20 something year old girlfriend a german widow from a, an american serviceman she had two children and she became pregnant there was no way she could have that child she had arrangements to give it up for adoption but she was not comfortable with that and i i accompanied her to pennsylvania it was it was like a, a dark, dingy, awful place. The man looked like a butcher. It was terrible. I said, you can't stay here. We have to leave. And we did. And she wound up throwing herself down two flights of stairs to oh lose the child. Um, later in my 20s, I got pregnant and I, I could not have this child for a variety of reasons. It would have ruined two families. The child would have had to been put up for adoption. I, I wasn't comfortable with any of it. And i took full responsibility, and I still do. I don't take it lightly. I do regard it as murder, but it's the choice I made is the the better of a whole variety of evils. But I was in my 20s. There was no place to go. I had heard that they were illegal. You could get an abortion in Puerto Rico. I borrowed, begged, got enough money together to get on a plane and go to Puerto Rico. I had no address. I knew no one. I didn't know where I was going or how I was going to do this. I arrived in the dead of night out in the middle of a field somewhere. I didn't even know anything. There was a cab. I said, can you take me to the nearest motel or hotel? I had very little money. And he took me to a hotel. It was late at night. They didn't have a room, and I didn't know what to do. And I stood at the counter about ready to fall apart, and a man came up and said, you is there a problem? And the desk clerk said, well, we don't have a room and she needs a room. And he said, well, I'm here with my son and my uncle. Uh, she could share my son's room. And he let me stay there. It turns out he was a CIA agent. And i didn't know that or anything. And the next, that night or the next morning, I'm walking up and down on the ocean praying to the gods, help me, please. I don't know what to do here. I I, I don't know anybody. I don't know what to do. And he said, you look like you're in trouble. Um, tell me about it. And so I told him, and he said... I can help you, but I want you to know that this will change your life you You will never forget this. You will probably always regret it. I said, I know, but I have to do it and He found a place, and I had no. an abortion and um and I came home, but people don't realize what they're doing by by making it illegal and impossible for a woman to have an abortion, it's a woman's right to decide what she does with her body. It's what? nobody else's business whatsoever. We're going back to the dark ages of hangers and girls throwing themselves downstairs or taking terrible risks. It's This is just such a dark day. I can't believe I've lived long enough to see such a thing, even remotely possible, and... Yes, God yes. help us all.
1: Well, Jane, I, I appreciate you sharing what sounds like a difficult and important story. And uh, it's it's just it's a lot to hear and understand the impact of banning abortions in your words. Chris writes, I had an abortion in 1972, pre-Roe v. Wade. I was 20, married with a contraceptive failure. It was a tough decision, but I am eternally grateful for the kindness of all involved in helping me get through it all. I was able to have two beautiful girls later and have never regretted my decision. We're talking about oral arguments today by the Supreme Court for a case involving a Mississippi abortion law. And joining us now is Mary Ziegler, professor of law at Florida State University College of Law. Her most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present. Professor Ziegler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first, I do just want to quickly get your reaction to oral arguments today and what direction you think the court is going.
8: So I I think going into this argument, I expected the court to be looking for what would, you know, what it could pass off as a middle ground. Essentially, that would mean getting rid of viability as the dividing line and opening the door to some bans earlier in pregnancy. I did not think the court would overrule Roe in one fell swoop. And after listening to oral argument today, I've I've changed my mind. I think we're likely to see the end of abortion rights altogether uh, this summer.
1: Mary Ziegler, we just heard Jane saying what she thinks we're going back to. Do you think the public has yet absorbed how much is at stake um, in terms of women's lives, the lives of people who can become pregnant when you ban abortions. Do you think that that has fully dawned on the U.S. public?
8: No, and I would even go a step further because, of course, people don't agree on what abortion is. Uh, There's been, um, many listeners may remember the debate about the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate, that debate turned on the claim by many folks who oppose abortion that common contraceptives are abortion-inducing drugs, including emergency contraceptives and uh, even IUDs. So I don't think it's dawned on people that even you know infer- infertility treatments are going to be viewed as abortifacients. So we're in a world that I don't think people uh, are entirely prepared for or even aware of.
1: And Eve writes, what about the argument that if Roe is overturned, it will in effect only affect women who lack, the, who lack the finances to travel to terminate their pregnancy, thus being a decision that allows laws that discriminate against poorer women? Shouldn't this kind of law be unconstitutional? What's your reaction to what Eve is saying here?
8: Well, I think there are two things. Eve is right that the burden of a post-Roe America will fall the most heavily on low-income people and people of color. Um, it's worth saying it will not fall only on Because if you are a wealthy person with, say, a planned pregnancy in a state where abortion is illegal and you have a miscarriage, but there's still a heartbeat, you may not be able to get emergency medical care because there are going to be gray areas that doctors don't want to step into if those areas might be considered abortion. But returning to the question of is it unconstitutional to discriminate on the basis of wealth in the United States, it's not (laughs) actually. So the government is free to make rights available to people, depending on how much money they have. That's not an outcome I necessarily celebrate, obviously, but that's not, that's already the America we live in. The United States Supreme Court has already held that it's constitutional to ban funding for abortion, even at a time when the court believed there was a right to abortion. And now quite clearly, there's a majority of justices who don't hold that belief
1: what do you think, we, we're going into a break, but that we immediately need to consider about a post-war world since you said something quite extraordinary, which is that you did not think they would totally overturn it, but now you feel more, that that could be more likely?
8: Yeah, I mean, if if you asked me to bet money right now, I would put money on them We're it immediately. Brett Kavanaugh is 1,000% ready. Um, Amy Coney Barrett sounds like she's going to overturn row two. Even if she doesn't do it immediately, she will do it. Um, So this is a question of when this is going to happen. In my opinion, there is no doubt that it's going to happen.
1: California's already been preparing for something like this. We'll hear more about that after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
4: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the future of Roe v. Wade after this morning's Supreme Court hearing over a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks, and there are no exceptions for rape or incest. We're talking with Mary Ziegler, professor of law at Florida State University College of Law, and we're also joined now by Katie Orr, politics and government reporter for KQED and author of the recent piece, California Prepares for Potentially Massive Surge in Out-of-State Abortion Patients. Katie Orr, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So California has been preparing for this surge. As you say, tell us how.
5: Yes, that's right. Um, Governor Gavin Newsom uh, recently convened the California Future of Abortion Council, which brings together, um, it's an advisory group, brings together uh, abortion advocates to look at some of the barriers that might face uh, people, pregnant people here in California when it comes to obtaining abortions, and to look at whether or not the state is prepared to handle um, what one study said could be a 3,000% increase in, in the number of out-of-state patients who come here seeking abortions. Um, as as our listeners probably know, California is a very, you know, uh, quote, uh, abortion friendly state. Um, the laws make it relatively easy, especially compared to the rest of the country to get an abortion. But there are still significant barriers, um, especially for lower income women, women who people who live in rural areas. Uh, 40% of California's counties do not have an abortion clinic in them. And, you know, that's only about 3% of uh, women in California of childbearing age, but, you know, that's hundreds of 1000s of people. So there are still issues that California needs to address. And this council is one way uh, they are starting to do that. The council will issue some recommendations uh, later this month that uh, it, in terms of how it thinks California can be even better prepared.
1: So in terms of locations, number of providers, and training for those providers, right, Katie
5: yeah exactly. That's one of the issues. So California actually allows a wider um a, a wider breadth of providers uh, to provide these kinds of abortions or to to provide abortions. However, there's not always places for these providers to get training on um how to do an abortion. So for instance, if a provider works at a federally funded health clinic, they might not be able to get the the training they need. Uh, there are some hospital systems, you know, run by like, you know, Catholic-based hospital organizations, uh, Christian-based organizations that don't do abortions, and their provide their providers uh, can't get the training they need. So that is a significant uh, barrier. There's also the issue that I looked at recently, visiting a clinic in Chico, where they have to have providers come in from larger areas because many providers don't want to live. In that in the town in rural towns where they provide abortions because the stigma is so strong that it would actually make their personal lives and professional lives too difficult to do so so there are certainly still many issues in California, even though we are relatively uh, an abortion friendly state.
1: And on the line now, we have Executive Director of the Women's Health Specialists of California, which has clinics in Chico, Redding, and Grass Valley, with us, Katrina Maxson-Cantrell. Katrina Maxson-Cantrell, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Talk about your experience trying to get providers to your area and to rural areas.
2: Well, this has been actually a historic uh, um, challenge for us, and we've been open since 1975. So it's not that a lot has changed. And, you know, I want to comment about, uh, you know, California leading the way. I really think it's important that in order for California to lead, providers of abortion services have to be paid an equitable Uh, amount for services they provide otherwise they won't be able to survive you can have all the advocacy groups that you want you can have all of the activism around abortion services but if the providers that are providing the services are not provided a uh, a just and equitable uh, fee it just you know it's not possible you know we've seen over the years clinic after clinic closing because they are not able to provide abortion services and and uh, cover the gaps between the cost of providing it and what you're reimbursed yeah so i and- think it, i think it's really very important because you know i mean we're we're really when i think about it we're actually in a crisis in this country you know and i think it's very important and i'm i'm you know taking this time to say You know, this is a time where there's a lot of challenges. You know, we have people in rural areas that are going through climate chaos. We've had large fires that, you know, have taken multiple lives. Not only do we have these climate challenges, we then have climate refugees. We have a destabilized workforce. We have women that are bearing the brunt of this COVID, um, you know, pandemic. And, you know, all of these things impact and affect how women's lives are. And if you put this cruel and inhumane, uh, you know, retraction of what we have had for the last five decades for abortion services, you know, I'm, I'm thinking there will be a revolution. Uh, And so I really do feel that this is a time to really say we're in a crisis.
1: And I think you're underscoring also that the state has struggled to help women pay for their especially low income women, even through Medi-Cal, pay for abortion services as well. It is difficult all around providers and then the people who are seeking abortions. And Mary Ziegler, if the court goes so far as to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey, what implications does that have for abortion rights in the state of California, maybe more in the long term, if not immediately?
8: Well, I think um, there's, uh, again, as I mentioned, a possibility long term that the Supreme Court will make uh, abortion unconstitutional in California as well. I think in the short term, the question for California is really going to be as a sort of beacon for people seeking abortion, what's the state going to do for people coming from out of state? Because there are going to be a lot of them. um, And there are going to be legal battles about Mm -hmm. if California, for example, offers abortion services to someone from out of state where it's illegal, will, you know, if if that state pursues the doctor for criminal charges, what's California going to do, whose law is going to apply. And so this is not a situation where uh, California will simply get to sort of shut itself off (laughs) from what's going on elsewhere in the country, because, of course, people will be coming to California for abortion services, and California will find itself in battles with other states about its power to do just that.
1: Debbie writes, I had an abortion at around 16 weeks in 1998. This was a wanted, planned pregnancy. I already had a four-year-old and two-year-old at the time, and I was 39, hoping for one last child. Unfortunately, I became incredibly sick during the pregnancy. Nothing I or my team of doctors did could stop my weight loss and blood loss. My husband and I decided to terminate the pregnancy, and I immediately started to get better. This was a clear case where the life of the mother was in danger. But the doctors didn't realize it until after the abortion. And after the abortion, the doctor told me that the fetus had severe growth retardation and wouldn't have survived. I think of that baby every year on its hypothetical birthday, and I'm very sad about the loss. However, I'm forever grateful that I survived to raise my two children who are now in their 20s. Mary Ziegler, Debbie's story is, is- heartbreaking and at the same time, I think really gets to some very interesting points and concerns with regard to abortion bans that are that exist around the country. Right now, we do see, quote unquote, exceptions for maternal health when the maternal life is in danger or fetal abnormalities. But we are also hearing anecdotes of women who say have had an ectopic pregnancy and doctors being fearful of treating that person in Texas, for example, because of the Texas abortion law, even if it does state that there are exceptions that are being mm-hmm. made for fetal life. And you penned a piece recently where you really talked about how these laws, the Mississippi law, the Texas law, that they actually also do not make exceptions for uh, rape or incest. And so can you talk a little bit about the, well, A, what that signifies, and B, the power of, quote-unquote, exceptions with abortion bans and how how truly subst- substantive they are.
8: Well, to begin with, most states are moving away from having exceptions, and the disappearance of the rape and incest exception is just one example. The rape and incest exception was never popular with people opposed to abortion because it conflicts with the idea that, that a fetus is a person, right? Um, but... For a while, it had become sort of a political necessity to accept the rape or incest exception regardless. And now I think the anti-abortion movement feels that the Supreme Court will do whatever it wants, and so there's no need to kind of play to popular majorities anymore. So it's not clear how many exceptions we'll see. We've seen from Texas, though, that when there are exceptions, doctors are willing to do only so much to perform abortions where those exceptions apply. And it's not hard to understand why, because these doctors will be facing Penalty is much greater, honestly, than what they have in Texas. Alabama, for example, has said that if Roe is gone, it will subject people who perform abortions to 99 years in prison. So there are very few doctors, if it's ambiguous, whether something would qualify as a medical emergency, they're not going to risk the rest of their lives in prison away from their families to provide that care. So a patient who is in a bona fide medical emergency is going to have to try to not only leave a state but probably leave a region because we're talking about large swaths of the country adjacent states and regions that are going to criminalize abortion so these exceptions will not have the same kind of force that state legislators may like you to think
1: let me go to caller jamie and marin hi jamie hi jamie are you there and while we try to reconnect with jamie let me go to diana and capitola hi diana
7: Hello. Um, Hi. I wanted to make a comment about um, how as much as it is depressing um, what we heard today with the argument, um, really, there has always been an issue that Roe was decided um, by the Supreme Court. And so, you know, abortion has been an issue that my husband and I have disagreed on. Um, and the only, the only point that she ever makes that I think has value is that really, Congress should have acted on this. And if Congress would protect women and offer them the opportunity to have an abortion legally and safely, then we wouldn't have to debate this year in, year out, and now potentially face uh,
8: abortion becoming illegal again. Thank you.
1: Diana, thanks. Mary Ziegler, let me get your reaction to what Diana just said about Congress.
8: Well, I think it's true that... um it's been a mistake for people who support abortion access to rely on the court, in part because the court is not telling us the answer to these things, it's in conversation with us. The court um, has limited power, it doesn't have an army, it doesn't have a budget, um, and it's always been shaped by political currents. So I think there was a sort of magical thinking among abortion rights supporters that if the court protected abortion rights, the rest of the, the issue, there nothing else mattered as much that you could be complacent. I think now, ironically, the shoe is on the other foot and you see conservatives essentially saying if the Supreme Court reverses Roe, we've won, which is, isn't true either. I mean, if the past 50 years tell you anything, it's the, you can't end this by winning in the Supreme Court. So I think there is a lot of political work to be done. I would say if progressives have fallen down anywhere, it's mostly not in Congress. I think progressives paid a lot of attention to Congress. I think it, in co- the Senate in particular, is structured in a way that makes it hard uh, to, for popular majorities to make their will felt. I think progressives have done a less good job of paying attention to state legislatures, particularly in purple states, which is why so many of the abortion laws we see are coming from states, not from Congress.
1: And Katrina Max, and Cantrell, I imagine you would agree with Mary Ziegler in terms of the fact that maybe voices were not strong enough, did not necessarily believe that this day could come.
2: Well, I think uh, some voices have not been that strong, but I think one of the things that we have to really confront is the fact that there are some that trusted that the uh, politicians that were in charge of decision-making, you know, were you know tied to maybe corporate interests or interests that really were not in the interest of women. So I think that is a place that all of us have to go back to and really think it about. I do not think you can also look at the fact that many of these people making these decisions are white males. So you have to unravel and unpack the systemic racism that exists, and that we are all existing under. And I think until we really look at that and take that on, we're going to continually always be in a defensive posture. Hmm. So you know, it's it's a it's a much broader and a bigger issue. And We're talking is- with
1: Katrina Maxon Cantrell, executive director for Women's Health Specialists of California; Katie Orr of KQED; and Mary Ziegler, professor of law, at Florida State University College of Law. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Karen writes, "It's pretty frustrating to see our country arrive at this point. I had a legal abortion at Planned Parenthood in Manhattan." When I was in graduate school in the early 1980s, when I became pregnant by my boyfriend, who later became my husband and eventually my ex-husband, I've never for one second regretted that decision. Looking back, the experience was completely neutral. I did not feel pressure to change my mind, nor did I feel pressure to have the abortion. It was a choice made freely that enabled me to pursue the life I wanted. I was not prepared to bear or raise a child. Motherhood is not for everyone. That young women since then have taken their right for granted and declined to defend that right has led us to this point. Let me go to Melissa in Southern California. Hi, Melissa. Join us.
7: Hi. I just wanted to uh, give, I don't know, I stand right now as a poster child to the success of overturning Roe versus Wade. My mom scheduled to have me aborted. My mom was a single mom, recently separated. She was pregnant at 16, and she already had three children. My mom had every reason to abort me, she was abused. She was too young. She already had children. But my mom made the choice to keep me. And I stand here right now, the mother of four children, who was, by the way, abused. I was raped as a teenager. I lived all of these things that we're discussing right now. And, and that's because my mom made the choice to keep me. And Melissa. if I had been in her shoes and if I had, had been pregnant when I was raped, I would have made the same choice because I know what it means for me.
1: Well, Melissa, I'm so just, sorry that you were raped. And also, I, I appreciate you calling in and sharing your story. And Katrina, Maxine Cantrell, what's your response to, to Melissa, who, who feels this in a very heartfelt way?
2: Well, I think every every woman and every person is entitled to live their own story, have their own journey. Uh, and I certainly do, uh, you know, it, it believe me, every woman's story resonates with me. After spending 45 years with story after story of women, just as compelling, uh, you know, accessing abortion services because their lives were made better for it. So I hear from the caller that, you know, it really, she's, you know, this made a difference in her life, just as abortion makes a difference in many, many, many women's lives. So, you know, it's a personal journey and one that, you know, that many women take. So I appreciate uh, the caller, but I also want to highlight and elucidate the absolute importance of abortion in women's lives.
1: Katrina maxson kentrell Executive Director of Women's Health Specialists of California with clinics in Chico, Redding, and Grass Valley. Thank you. Katie Orr, Politics and Government Reporter for KQED. Thank you. Her recent article, California prepares for potentially massive surge in out-of-state abortion patients. And my thanks to you, Mary Ziegler, Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law, Her most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present. Also, for all the stories we heard today and for all the feelings we are feeling today, Forum is here.
2: I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.